Friends, keep Psalm 34 open in front of us as we taste and see that the Lord is good together. Well, a number of years ago, um, my wife Peter and I lived in a beautiful part of the world, um, just in the foothills of the Victorian Alps in northeast Victoria. It's got to be one of the most spectacular parts of Australia, I think. We went hiking and mountain bike riding in the forest in summer and skiing in the winter. One year I enjoyed one of the most spectacular days of my life, uh, out backcountry skiing with a great friend called Paul. Here he is. Um, Ali, I might need your help here. I don't know whether my phone link's going to work. There we go. There's Paul again. Just spectacular countryside as we went out for about four hours uh, out the back of Falls Creek. Uh, Mountain streams making their way under this kind of crust of marzipan that the wind has just sculpted into the most kind of beautiful scenery. It's kind of pinch yourself kind of moments. And so actually this is a picture of me that Paul took and then sent to me, kind of figuratively pinching myself, having one of those moments, just standing there. This was the furthest extent of where we went to on the horizon is Mount Bogong, the highest peak in Victoria. Over my right shoulder is the Kosciuszko main range in New South Wales and you can see it all laid out before you in all its glory. It's just one of those moments where I just stood there in awe and wonder at the goodness of God. But I confess, I didn't know Paul was taking the photo, but as I stood there, at exactly that moment that he took the photo, I was thinking about Paul because I thought, I stand here, God, in, in awe and wonder at your creative glory and majesty. And, and what's my mate Paul thinking? Because I, I knew that he didn't see behind all of this the glory of God. But I struggled as he was taking it all in, blown away by the view just as I was, to kind of imagine what it was that Paul was thinking. And yet somehow in the moment I was was kind of reluctant to, to break the magic of the moment to ask him directly. In hindsight, I feel like I needed the words that we've just read from Psalm 34. Paul, just taste and see that the Lord is good. I wonder if you can relate to that. Maybe you've had that kind of mountaintop experience, literally like that, or kind of its figurative equivalent, and your heart is just bursting with the goodness of God. You've seen something of His glory, but you've got, you've got friends and family that just don't share that perspective, and you're not quite sure how to help them see it. Or perhaps, actually, that kind of mountaintop experience, that feels a whole world away from your reality. Life is hard. And actually, perhaps you read through Psalm 34 as Mandy was reading it there and perhaps it just felt a bit hard to relate to those really big statements about God's rescue and his deliverance and his goodness. Perhaps you're down in the trenches, not on top of the mountain. You're looking for his rescue and trying to share of God's goodness with your friends. That, that runs the risk of just feeling a little bit hollow. Well, whatever the case, we're going to see that Psalm 34 is really helpful because it isn't actually about the mountaintop experience, but the really gritty, messy reality of life. To help us unpack it, we'll see that this psalm falls into two pretty neat halves with two invitations for us. In the first half from verse 1 to 10, David, king of Israel who writes this, he invites us to sit beside him looking at the view. And then in the second half from verse 11 to 22... David invites us to sit at his feet, learning from his perspective. 
But as we dive in, it's helpful to see that this is one of the few psalms that we've actually given a bit of historical context for. I don't know if you noticed that right at the top of Psalm 34, there's a little heading in italics. Interestingly, this isn't one that our modern translators have just added in to try and help us find our way around. This is, this is there, it's in the Hebrew. This is the historical context of the psalm. We're told that this psalm is about when David was before Abimelech. And for those that are interested, want to write down 1 Samuel chapter 21 is exactly where we can read about that. And we learned that this was an incredibly difficult time in David's life. In 1 Samuel tells us the story of David's beginning as a humble shepherd boy, plucked out of obscurity and anointed by God to be the successor to Saul, the king of Israel. But like most kings, Saul didn't want a successor. <laughs> And he grew increasingly jealous of David and increasingly violent in his jealousy of David. David eventually had to flee, fleeing for his life. (laughs) And where do you go when the king is hunting you? Well, he ended up in enemy territory, hoping to go kind of incognito amongst the Philistines. But by this point in his life, David himself had become a mighty warrior. He'd killed Goliath some years before this. And he was recognised by some of the Philistines who dobbed him into the Philistine king Abimelech. So he kind of jumped out of the frying pan of Saul's jealousy and he'd landed into the fire of the Philistine army. What did David do? 1 Samuel 21, he had to resort to seeming to be insane. Read this graphic account of the saliva dribbling down his beard as he, as he tried to show himself to be a madman to escape with his life. And Psalm 34 is written by a man on the run. He's running from his enemies, he's running from his own king. 1 Samuel tells us that at this point he's living in the caves in the wilderness. He's not standing in victory on the top of some mountain. And this is the psalm that he wrote. So in many ways the view from where David's at looked pretty bleak. Except as we can see, David, David could see through that, could see beyond it to see the glory of God in it all. So we've got that context in mind as we have a look at these two halves, right? So from verse 1 to 10, we read David's invitation for us to sit beside him and rejoice in the view. As David said, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the Afflicted, hear and rejoice. David is just overflowing in praise. He's using as many different words. He's pulled out his thesaurus. How many different ways can I say I want to praise God? Because he's overflowing in praise to God. And then in verse 3, he invites us to join him in rejoicing. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. But it kind of begs the question, why would you, why would you want to rejoice with this man hiding in the caves? Hartley seems like a glamorous situation in life well David then talks us through both his own personal experience paralleled with what he knows to be true of God's people I sought and he delivered me well yeah God has done in part delivered him from Saul delivered him from Abimelech then he says generally those who look to God reflect his glory I called and he saved God protects and delivers those who fear him that's his confidence This is my personal experience. This is what I know to be true of God. And then in verse 8, he makes the invitation really personal. Guys, don't just come and glorify God with me for what I've experienced. 
Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think that's really helpful for us because in that sense, this is where the imputation gets personal for us, right? We're reading this roughly 3,000 years after David wrote it, but it's just as relevant to you and me. Come and see how good God is. Taste and see. I reckon it's a, it's a great invitation because it recognises that we might be cautious. You can almost imagine David sort of saying, yeah, sure, sure, I, 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 get, I get that it might be, you might need a little bit of convincing. So come and try, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have a taste and you want to sit down for the main meal. Once you've had the entree, you'll be hanging out for the main course. But it'd be reasonable for us to ask, sure, David, but how, how, do, we, how do we get a taste for God? And David uses some really clever poetry uh, to give us the answer. He uses this lovely parallel that the Hebrew poets often did. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's his invitation. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. That's his assurance. And then he rephrases the same idea. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. That's his invitation reworded for us. For those who fear him like nothing. Do you see how the, the rephrasing, the repetition of it, helps us to understand what he's talking about? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, how do I get a taste for God? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord? Surely that sounds a bit negative, a bit daunting. Who's excited to get a taste of God if it means being scared of him? So let's pause and just reflect back over what we've just read to see what David meant by that. You see, we only need to look back to see how David himself has related to God to understand what it means to fear God. For one thing, he is, he is overflowing with praise. He loves his God. He wants to extol and praise and glorify God, to rejoice in God. That is part of the fear of God. It's the delight of who God is and what he's done. Then David described what he did in verse 4, I sought the Lord. In verse 6, I called out to him. That's part of the fear of the Lord. Looking for God, longing for God. And three times David has pointed to God as deliverer and saviour. Deliverer again in verses 4 through 7. What does it mean to fear God? At its core, it is consciously depending on God for life and living in light of it, and loving him in light of it. To put it another way, the fear of the Lord is loving the fact that we are very small, and God is very big, and we need him to use his bigness to protect our smallness. Taste and see that the Lord is good, David invites us. Get a taste of God by leaning on him. David says, come and join me in the joyful fear of the Lord. Because it's not a negative thing. He's not trying to command us to do something that we don't really want to do. It's an invitation to taste those chocolate biscuits that Jane had for us. To, to taste something that is really good. So good that David is convinced that we want to join him in rejoicing in God. So that's David's invitation. Despite how hard life was for him at that time, the view from where he sat in his little cave in hiding, it still showed him just how good God is. 
So he invites us to join him in the, fear, in the joyful fear of God. And then in the second half of the psalm, we get David's second invitation. It's the offer to sit at his feet and to learn from his perspective. Verse 11 reads, Come, my children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And so David says, like, I've invited you. Come and taste and see. Come and fear the Lord. Now I will teach you how to taste and see that God is good. How to know the one who is awesome in power and overflowing in kindness, who is really big and loves us, though we are small. And it might surprise us that David tells us that it actually starts with our ethics. Did you notice that in verse 13? Keep your tongue from evil. We might say, you know, watch what you say. Verse 14, do good instead of doing evil. Watch what you do. Verse 14 again, seek peace, pursue it. Watch what you work for, what you desire, what you long for. David says, we need need to think carefully about our ethics. What we do and say and chase after it matters. But let's be clear, David is not saying that life is like some giant big vending machine, that as long as you put enough good works and, and good intent into the little slot, when you pull the lever, you'll get the treat that you're after. Now, actually, as the psalm unfolds, verse 15 to 22 helps us to see that the way that we live, our concern for our ethics, well, that flows out of a core delight in knowing that God is with us. David's inviting us to sit at his feet and to learn from his perspective, to learn how to fear the Lord, to taste and see that God is good. And right at the heart of that is the confidence that God is with us, that God cares for us. I wonder if for some of you, as we read through Psalm 34, you thought, gosh, there's there's a lot of words here that remind me of what we've just read in Exodus just in the weeks gone by, because I think David quite happily takes us back to some of the big ideas of Exodus. Psalm 34, verse 15, God sees his people and he hears his people's cries for help. He comes down and he delivers and he rescues. That is David's confidence that God is so concerned for his people that he takes action and they're all the same attributes that we've just read about in Exodus in recent weeks that God saw his people suffering that he heard their cries that he was concerned for them that he came down to rescue them because that is what our God is like he is good and then in verse 18 David gives us this wonderfully kind of personal image that God is the one who is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's not just some distant dictator to be terrified of. We don't fear him in that sense. He's the awesome creator of all things, but he loves his children so dearly that he comes near, right into the thick of it. Now, the reality is that even as he wrote this psalm, I don't think David could have imagined just how near God would come. But when John wrote his gospel account of Jesus' death on the cross, John wanted to point it out to us. I want you to flash forward a thousand years from David hiding in a cave to Jesus dying on a cross. In John chapter 19, we read John's account of Jesus' crucifixion. And John is keen to point out that Jesus had been crucified and he actually died fairly quickly, so quickly that the Roman soldiers, who would sometimes come and break the legs of the victims so that they would suffocate more quickly to hasten the death, 
They didn't need to do that. Jesus had already died. They just thrust a spear into his side to confirm that, yes, Jesus has really died. John explains the significance for us in chapter 19, verse 36. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. What is the scripture that's being fulfilled? It's word for word from here in Psalm 34, verse 20. This is how close God has come to the brokenhearted. That in perfect righteousness, Jesus would take on flesh and live amongst us and then suffer and die in our place. Jesus was the ultimate righteous person of David's psalm who trusted that ultimately the Lord would deliver him. And he was raised from the dead. Now, I don't, David could have even imagined <laughs> that this is how God would ultimately fulfill these words that he wrote. That the ultimate expression of God's concern that he sees and he hears and is concerned, he comes to rescue. David would not just look back at his own life experience with Saul and Abimelech. He would not just look back at the history of God made known through the Exodus. But it would actually be seen in Jesus on the cross. So that's one thing. As we sit next to David and we learn from his perspective, as we sit at his feet and, and we allow him to teach us the fear of the Lord... It's good for us to see that what he saw in a kind of a vague outline in his own life, let's come into a clearer focus in Jesus himself. But I think the second thing to note is that David isn't just showing how to see life from the top of the mountain. It would be easy, wouldn't it? And probably for most of us, I think at first glance, we read through Psalm 34 and it sounds like some awesome song of victory. Praise God for all his goodness, rescue, deliverance, no troubles anymore. The kind of mountaintop experience where you, you gaze out on the pristine view like me, uh, the Victorian Alps there. But let's remember where David was when he wrote it. He's homeless, living in caves. He's escaping the enemy that he fled to because he thought the enemy was safer than his own king who was trying to kill him. So yes, David has seen glimpses of the provision and the protection of God, but he's hardly in the clear. He is very much still in the thick of it. So his words of victory are statements of faith. This is what God will do because this is what God is like. His testimony isn't, look at how good my life is and then you'll know that God is good. No, he's saying, what I've experienced in my life is just a taste of what God has made known through his word. That that is what is like. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and fear the Lord with me, David says. And so David finishes his psalm with a final statement of faith. Verse 22, the Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. That was his lesson for anyone willing to sit at his feet and, and to learn the fear of the Lord. Because David knew that his ultimate refuge, it wasn't in the caves that he was camping in or the disguise that he wore or the band of rebel soldiers that gradually gathered around him. His refuge was in the Lord. And so David leaves us with his two invitations. Come, sit beside me, enjoy the view with me, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, sit at my feet and learn from my perspective how to fear the Lord and to see that he truly is good. 
We've got two invitations, but I think they actually speak to us in in two slightly different ways. As a starting point, this is an invitation for us all to hear. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. To learn from David and the rest of the Bible how to lean on the one who rescues. If today is the first day, that the first time that you've heard an invitation like this, or perhaps it's the first time that you've kind of taken it seriously, or maybe it's just the first time in a long time that you've thought about it, it's the kind of invitation that we'd love to be able to chat with you about. We'd love to help you taste and see that God is good, really good. That's what we're on about, to be a community of people who who just want to taste for more and and more and wherever we are in that journey. If you want to chat more about it, come and talk to me after church, grab a contact card that's on the chairs around, just jot down some way that we can get in touch with you and say, I'd like to taste and see. We can take it from there. Because for some of us, I think that invitation, it's more than enough for us to hear God speaking those words to us today to reflect on how we might respond. But I think Psalm 34 also speaks to us as an invitation to share, for us to be the people who are offering the invitation, saying to people in our lives, come, come and come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think it's a wonderful model for us of how to share an invitation like this. I love the way that in this psalm, David implies for us, that you don't have to get it all to have your first taste. You don't have to accept it completely before you take your first step. Come and have a taste by beginning to put God where he deserves to be in your life, at the centre. Come and sit at the feet of David and all of other God's inspired authors as as they make God known through his word. Sit at the feet and start with wisdom. See what God has to say about living life, then then listen and think for hope and and then where you find your joy and ultimately peace because that's what Jesus came to give. It's a model that says, come and have a taste. Come and have a taste and see that the Lord is good. Just, Just start out by acknowledging that you are very small and he is very big. You need him to use his bigness to take care of your smallness. And it's so helpful because, as we've been reminded, This is not glorious King David, Israel's great king, sitting at the height of his glory and majesty, the extent of his power. It's David sitting beside a campfire, hiding in the caves. He's got a bounty on his head, but he's still able to see the goodness of God in the mess of his life. So it's an invitation that I can relate to. Not because I've ever had a bounty on my head, but because I can relate to the gritty realness of it. It's not an invitation that requires me to put on some facade and say to, say to my friends, hey, come and check out how good God is and he'll give you a perfect life. Look at my insta-perfect kind of example of the Christian life. <laughs> just give me a minute to sweep that mess under the carpet and uh, I just need to put that anxiety in, the boss, in, in a box and, and now you can come and see how good God is. It's not like that at all. It's a model of how to offer an invitation to our friends and family who actually do know how messy life is and how messy our lives are. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
This is what he's done for me in my life. He's been kind. This is what he does for us all in Jesus. Finally, I love that it's the kind of invitation that acknowledges that we are all walking by faith together, just as David was. He clearly didn't know the details of how God would sort it out in the end. But he trusted in the God who, who really is good. And he lived by faith. And he invited others to join him, not in a firm destination that he had every box ticked and all sorted out, but on a journey where he walked by faith. And I wonder if you can think of one person in your life that you want to make the same effect, the same, same, same invitation to. To effectively say to them, come and have a taste, grow with me while I keep learning what it means to trust in God's final rescue. To be able to say to them, I certainly haven't got it all sorted out, but come and walk with me while I keep trusting that eventually the mess in my life will become the beauty of the life to come. I wonder if you think of someone in your life that you can say, come and join me in the fear of the Lord. Sounds terrifying, but it's actually beautiful. Join me in putting Jesus at the centre, in showing him the reverence and the awe and the dependence and the devotion, the love that he deserves. Let's be praying about who God might lay on our hearts that we can say to them, come and taste. Taste and see that God is good. Because I know it and I just want you to get a taste of it too. Now friends, I'm going to invite the band to come on forward because we're going to segue kind of straight into a really great song that has been chosen for us that helps us to cast our minds to Calvary, to Jesus, the perfect righteous one who came in our place to show us that ultimately the Lord is good. He is the deliverer. He is the rescuer. He is mighty to save. That as, as we've had a taste of it, as we, as we keep getting a taste of just how good God is, we, we want to join David in those opening words, come, come and glorify the Lord with me. But before we sing, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've shown us your wonder and majesty, your power, your great goodness ultimately, in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are kind to give us snippets and tastes and glimpses of that in our own lives. And Father, whether we feel this morning, this Sunday morning, like we are on the top of the mountain, enjoying a spectacular view, or down in the swamp at the bottom of the valley, or just kind of trudging along the path somewhere in between, we pray that you would help us to see the view of Jesus in all his glory through whatever else lies in front of us. That we ourselves would hear David's invitation, come, taste and see that the Lord is good, and that you would give us the great delight of sharing that invitation with others too. Come, taste, for he is good. We pray this in his name. Amen.